Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. With the goal of educating and empowering women, each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the As a Woman podcast, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. Today, I want to talk about first trimester bleeding. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford. I'm a board-certified OBGYN and REI, and I have firsthand experience, both professionally and personally, when it comes to bleeding and early pregnancy. I know for a fact that when you are pregnant, especially when you are early in the pregnancy and you have bleeding, it really makes your heart start to race, and you're probably quick to go to the internet or call your doctor or look to a friend or family member or somebody to try to figure out what's going on. I want to break down the top causes of bleeding in early pregnancy, when to be worried, when to get evaluated, and let you know medically what all it could mean. Many of you know this, but I had infertility and I had recurrent pregnancy loss. So with my children, my babies, they're not quite babies anymore. They are six and eight, but I had four losses before them. So my kids are pregnancies five and six. So I know that exact feeling of being pregnant and bleeding and being really, really fearful that something is not right. That's a huge reason why I even started being on social media or trying to educate because when I went through my own infertility experience, I was on forums, y'all. I was on the internet before it was cool to talk about fertility and everybody was still anonymous and nobody was talking about this on Instagram. I was really searching in forums and listening to other people's experience. And it brought me a lot of comfort, but I also was a doctor, I was an OBGYN during this, and I still was looking to other people. So I think that just goes to speak. There is so much that we don't know, and there's so much that when you go through it, makes you want to understand more. So this episode is going to help you understand if you are going through this yourself, if you're going to be pregnant one day, or you've been pregnant in the past, or friends or family members, when they potentially will get pregnant and have bleeding, you will understand a little bit what it might be like to go through that. Before we dive into this topic, I want to start with fertility in the news. I'm really loving this segment, and I hope you guys are enjoying hearing a little bit about fertility and how it is making the news. This one is really interesting, and I think this is something that you're all going to be just appalled by. So there has been articles out that a sperm donor who had a known genetic condition is speaking out that he did a good thing. So this is a man who knew he carried a genetic condition that would be passed on by his sperm. His name is James McDougall. He is 37 years old, and he donated sperm privately over Facebook groups. 
Some of you may not know this. So number one, this is Pride Month, and we here are so supportive of anybody who wants to have a family, no matter who you are, who you love, what your family structure looks like. If you want to have a child, I'm here to support you. One thing that's just hard overall is that people who either are unpartnered or in a same-sex relationship have to go through extra hoops in order to conceive. So for example, same-sex female couples are going to have to use a sperm donor. And many of the times you have to get the sperm. What's recommended is you should get tested. You should know what sperm is going to be most compatible. You get the sperm from an FDA-approved sperm bank. The sperm's already been screened for infectious diseases and genetic conditions. Then it gets shipped to a fertility doctor like me, where we talk about the different options, either insemination, which is where we take the sperm, we put it in a catheter, and we put it inside your body, or IVF, where we take out a group of eggs, fertilize them in the lab, make embryos, and then put an embryo back in your body, and you conceive that way. Well, understandably, that's expensive, and it takes time, and you have to pay the fertility clinic, and you've got to pay the sperm bank, and you have to pay for the procedures. And so some people have turned to other alternatives, and one of these is private Facebook groups. So there are Facebook groups out there. I know this from my patients too, because I will have patients come see me after they have failed to conceive using sperm that they purchased or even connected with. Sometimes it wasn't even purchased. They just connected with somebody who in this Facebook group was willing to donate their sperm, and then they're able to get a fresh sperm sample from said person and use that for a home insemination, putting the sperm inside the vagina at home. I am all for equalizing fertility care. I agree the current system is too expensive, especially if you know you need donor gametes. However, it's expensive for a reason. It decreases the risk of genetic diseases. That's a really important thing. And it also decreases the risk of infectious diseases. Also an important thing. When you are using sperm, that somebody is donating to you from a Facebook group. This person has not been screened. This person has not been compensated always because the men who donate their sperm at the sperm bank, they're at least getting financial compensation for this. So that's the reason why they're doing this. I've always felt like it's curious that some of these people are just connecting and meeting in parking lots and dropping off samples of sperm in addition to it just sounding dangerous. But in this situation, James McDougall, 37, he carried a known condition called Fragile X Syndrome. Fragile X is a area of the X chromosome. Let's remember that most genetic males are XY and most genetic females are XX. This is an area of weakness on the X chromosome that can cause low IQ and it can cause developmental delay. And so this person, James, knew he carried this and he willingly gave his sperm without disclosing that information, meaning any daughter that was conceived with his sperm would carry Fragile X, which would put her at risk for premature ovarian failure and something called Fragile X ataxia syndrome, and her future children at strong, strong risk to have Fragile X syndrome if they inherited that one X chromosome. It is more severe in males because they only have the one X chromosome. I think the story is even more interesting than this, however. The reason why the story came out is because Mr. McDougall applied to family court because he wanted to have access to his children, despite the fact that when he 
gave his sperm sample. He signed a contract saying he didn't want any contact with them. He was just a normal sperm donor. He actually wanted access to his children. Again, this is why we recommend a true legal document with a reproductive lawyer if you're using any known sperm donor and you're not going through an FDA-approved sperm bank. And when he did this, the truth came out and he was quoted saying, I did a good thing by helping these women. I gave them children, but people are saying that I was not honest. So not only did this guy give or donate his sperm in a private Facebook group with a known genetic condition, he knew he had this and he did not disclose it. He also then tried to connect and get access to the children despite signing an agreement that he would not do so. So my plea here is just to say, y'all connecting with gamete donors on the internet is a scary place. I had seen some amazing connections with embryo donation or gestational carriers online. And I think that can be a very powerful thing. But the best scenarios, you then utilize a fertility clinic and you undergo appropriate screening processes to prevent incidents like this. James McDougall would never have been approved by a sperm bank. They wouldn't have accepted his sperm after they did genetic testing. If he'd gone to a sperm bank, he would have had to sign an agreement that absolutely would have been upheld that he doesn't get to contact those children. And every sperm bank has different scenarios when a child could contact you or when you could be known. So he's acting for some ulterior motive. And I want you to think about what that would be. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy, and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No my shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W 
to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited the summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. Okay, well, back to today's topic, bleeding in early pregnancy. So when I was an OBGYN resident, one of our rotations was essentially in this GYN emergency room. And we took care of people who were having gynecologic emergencies or needed care or who were in their first trimester of pregnancy when they were pre-viable and they were having complications, namely bleeding. So bleeding in early pregnancy was something we saw a lot. And I know it is a really terrifying time. So let's just think through everything that it could be. The very first thing and the earliest type of bleeding you might have could potentially be implantation bleeding. In the implantation episode, I talk about this a lot, but essentially how I want you to view implantation The baby, the placenta, has to attach onto maternal blood circulation. And so what actually happens is that the placenta sends out these enzymes, these proteases that degrade protein and allow that placental blood supply to latch in to that maternal blood supply. However, this process is not always perfect. And so sometimes you can see bleeding as one blood vessel gets eaten away at, if you will, before that next placental blood vessel comes and invades. So implantation bleeding can happen with a positive pregnancy test, and this is something that we aren't really concerned about. It's typically early spotting bleeding. It's usually with a very early pregnancy test. And alone, this type of bleeding really is nothing to worry about. This same idea, this same thing that can cause implantation bleeding can develop into something called an SCH or a subchorionic hematoma or a subchorionic hemorrhage. So an SCH is the exact same thing. When the placenta is trying to invade into the maternal blood circulation, a blood vessel bleeds and this little pocket of blood can develop next to or behind the placenta. This can cause bleeding in pregnancy. The bleeding could be bright red. It could also be dark brown or older depending on how long that hematoma has been there, and if you're seeing the blood immediately or if you're seeing the blood coming out at a later time. So it can look like anything. I know that's not reassuring. When we do an ultrasound, what we see is we usually see the gestational sac 
That's the sac of which the baby is growing inside. You can see these structures inside the sac, which usually you should see for early pregnancy, can include a yolk sac, a fetal pole, and then what you see is a darker area somewhere outside that gestational sac, and that's actually the bleeding pocket inside the uterus. So bleeding in pregnancy is overall really common. So bleeding in the first trimester, about 25% of all pregnancies will experience some bleeding. So if you have bleeding, you're not alone, and it doesn't mean the pregnancy is doomed. Now, an SCH will account for about 20% of all of that bleeding, so also relatively common. You can't just presume it's an SCH, though. You'll have to call your doctor, so here's the recommendation. You're going to call your doctor. You're going to get in for an early ultrasound. If the bleeding's heavy and your doctor can't see you, you might need to go to an emergency room. But your doctor will do an ultrasound. An ultrasound this early in pregnancy would be a vaginal ultrasound. And they're going to look around and hopefully say the baby looks good, the baby's size is good, the heartbeat is good. But I see this area of bleeding behind the placenta called a subchorionic hematoma or the SCH. Now, I've told people this and I always know this is a scary thing to hear. Oh my gosh, there's bleeding outside the gestational sac. Does this mean I have a higher incidence of miscarriage? Does this mean I'm going to lose the pregnancy? So this has been studied a lot. And so one thing we also know is that subchorionic hematomas are more common in people who undergo IVF. So up to 30 to 40% of IVF pregnancies actually will have an SCH. Not all of them bleed. So it may be that we're just detecting them more because our IVF patients tend to get earlier ultrasounds. And not really that IVF or something about IVF causes extra bleeding behind the placenta or during invasion or implantation. We don't really know. But we do know what is really reassuring is that in studies looking at outcomes of subchorionic hematomas and pregnancies in infertility patients, so we have a recent study published in the International Journal of Gynecology and Obstetrics, and it's titled Outcomes of Subchorionic Hematoma Affected Pregnancies in the Infertile Population. Over 1,000 pregnant people in an infertility clinic were evaluated. There was not any stratification based on treatment type, so these were all comers who ended up getting pregnant. The prevalence of an SCH was 12.5% in this population without any difference in what treatment they did. And the live birth rate was 81.3% with no difference in patients who had an SCH or did not when it came to miscarriage. In another study published in Fertility and Sterility, this was published in 2020, outcomes of an IVF pregnancy complicated by subchorionic hematoma detected on first trimester ultrasound. So the study had over a thousand patients who underwent IVF and had a singleton pregnancy and they had subchorionic hematoma or no subchorionic hematoma seen on their first trimester ultrasound. So when they went to look at this, the incidence of a subchorionic hematoma was 18.6%, but there was no association between an SCH and the outcome of live birth or even preterm birth or birth weight. So there were no pregnancy complications in the patients who were found to have an SCH. And to take this one step further, a study published in Assisted Reproductive Technologies in 2020 
said factors associated with subchronic hematoma formation in pregnancies achieved via assisted reproductive technology, that means IVF. This study was looking at reasons why, if there were any associations between those who had an SCH and those who did not. This was a retrospective study, so they looked backwards, and there were 210 clinical pregnancies from fresh embryo transfers at a fertility center from 2012 to 2016. So they looked at different clinical and lab values to try to see if there were any associations. And one thing they did find was an association between the trophectoderm grading and incidence of subchorionic hematoma. So what that means is the trophectoderm is the placenta. So those are the cells that become the placenta from an embryo. An A grade, it's kind of like school. A is the best. B is average, so B is good. A is better. B is good. C is less good. So trophectoderms with an A grade, more organized, symmetric, and pretty under the microscope, were less likely to have an SCH compared to embryos with grades of a B or a C. So this even persisted when they did different models and looked for other factors that potentially could be contributing. So this is really interesting. I think this goes back to the placenta. So this is an issue with the placenta invading, or perhaps if it invades irregularly or more disorganized, or who knows, you might have a higher incidence of having an SCH. So this supports what we do in clinical practice, which is when we're doing IVF, we pick the embryos that are number one, genetically normal first, and then two, from the genetically normal ones, we pick the ones that have the best morphology or shape or grading. And so that would mean that we would pick embryos that hopefully would have a lower incidence of an SCH just because it does cause emotional distress to have bleeding, even if it's not contributing to a higher incidence of miscarriage. So the take-home message, SCH can be common. We see them more in IVF or infertility population patients. It may be do something about the process or quality of embryo or placentation, or it may just be that we monitor these pregnancies earlier. But if you are found to have an SCH, there's no higher incidence of miscarriage or pregnancy complications. So that should make you feel more reassured. So if you go in, you find you have an SCH, I understand that's scary to hear that, but this can let you feel better that that's not associated with a higher chance of miscarriage. It doesn't mean that miscarriage 100% won't happen because miscarriage can happen. There's a lot of different factors at play that can contribute to a miscarriage. But it means you are no more likely to have a miscarriage just because you have the SCH than you would be otherwise based on your age or other factors. So another type of bleeding in the first trimester may actually be a miscarriage either in process or what we consider a missed miscarriage. So there's really two different types of miscarriage on the spectrum. One is considered incomplete. That's the miscarriage in process, but it hasn't completed itself. This is the scenario where you have bleeding. It's a more common scenario with bleeding. Often the bleeding is heavy or potentially could have clots or tissue. But when you go for an ultrasound, there's still a lot of thickness inside the lining and there may be pieces of the placenta, for example, that could still be retained. Sometimes in the setting of an incomplete miscarriage, we recommend immediate action, whether it could be a surgical procedure like a DNC, a dilation and curettage. That is a suction device that goes into the uterus to essentially gently suck out all of those remaining products so that you can one, stop bleeding, two, resolve the pregnancy faster, 
and three, prevent scar tissue formation inside the uterus, which can happen from retained products. So in the setting of an incomplete miscarriage, you might need surgical intervention. Another option would be potentially a medical option. So if you're not hemorrhaging or having acute bleeding, nothing's a true emergency, but the miscarriage is definitely not completed, you might get medication. One example is mesoprostol or otherwise known as Cytotec. This encourages uterine contractions and opening up of the cervix so that hopefully everything else could be passed in a more natural way, but a way to try to expedite a natural pregnancy. And so that could be a medical option to try to accomplish the same goal. We need to get all the products out of the uterus so that you can recover from the situation the best. In a missed miscarriage, some people have no bleeding or some people may just have early spotting. What has happened in a missed miscarriage is that you really don't have clinical signs of the miscarriage. You don't have the cramping or the heavy bleeding but the pregnancy is no longer viable. So in this circumstance, the pregnancy is either not growing, the baby has stopped having a heartbeat, or the baby never developed. Maybe it's a blighted ovum or just a sac with no pregnancy inside, but the pregnancy is still intact and inside the uterus. So this is another circumstance where our goal shifts in order to try to keep you the safest and to try to have your uterus heal up as soon as possible. Complications from some of these missed or incomplete miscarriages can include heavy bleeding, scarring inside the uterus, a septic miscarriage, which is where those products of conception actually get infected inside your uterus. And that's a very severe complication. You'd have to get IV antibiotics in the hospital, would, you know, have high risks with surgical intervention because the uterus gets soft, it may perforate or get a hole punctured in it. And you might have a much higher incidence of scarring because that uterus is really soft and it's losing its kind of normal structure. And so if you have to remove those products of conception or just the presence of that infection inside the uterus, that can lead to scar tissue later. And not all scar tissue can always be removed. Sometimes it's a complete scarring of the uterus called Asherman syndrome. And this sometimes is something we can't fix, even though we will try, you can't always recover normal uterine function after scarring of the uterus. So in a missed miscarriage, we really have the same treatment options that your doctor will discuss with you. Should we proceed with a surgical intervention, sometimes this could even be an in-office intervention. You might not have to go under anesthesia. We call this a manual uterine aspiration or an MUA. Some offices use different terminologies but it's a small catheter that goes through the cervix into the uterus. You apply some suction and you suck out the products of conception, the placenta, whatever fragments are there, and you have a quick recovery. You could have a DNC procedure, which is a little bit wider gauge suction catheter, and it is done under anesthesia because it hurts how wide it is to go through the cervix. Or you could try a medical option, such as the mesoprostol. Occasionally in our fertility patients, because we are supplementing with progesterone very often in treatment cycles, we might stop the progesterone and see if that drop in progesterone levels will trigger your body to proceed with a miscarriage. This is because that's one of the ways the body normally communicates. And if we're supplementing progesterone, the uterus may not have gotten that drop of progesterone that usually happens when a pregnancy is not viable. And so you might not have seen or been able to have 
the bleeding, the cramping, the things you need to pass the tissue. So if you are on progesterone, you might see that offered as a first-line treatment. Stop the progesterone and watch and see what happens. But if you're not having anything happen, then you're going to have to intervene with one of the options described. Overall, I don't love the watch and see approach for everybody, meaning if you're not on progesterone and your body's not doing it, it's not necessarily inappropriate for maybe a week or so, but you've got to intervene at some time or those complications potentially could be serious and they could prohibit you from getting pregnant in the future. And that is not something we want at all. So I've been there when it comes to miscarriage. It's not a fun place to be. It's overwhelming. You're getting this news usually in a very vulnerable position after this ultrasound, and it's not what you were wanting or hoping for. Shift your focus to recovering from this pregnancy in the safest and best and fastest way possible so that we can get on to that next step for you. And the last piece of advice is I'm a very strong believer that your HCG levels, that pregnancy hormone that was made from the pregnancy, need to be followed down to zero. I've seen too many patients who ended up with some scar inside their uterus from some retained piece of placenta, and they never had their levels followed down after the miscarriage. And if they had, they might have noted a persistently low but elevated value that could have been a clue sooner on. So ask your doctor or even consider a home pregnancy test if your doctor's not willing to follow your levels, something to confirm that that HCG is getting down to negative. All right, and then another top cause of bleeding in early pregnancy can be an ectopic pregnancy. I had an ectopic pregnancy on my fourth pregnancy, and this was my experience. I started having dark brown bleeding. I knew I was pregnant. We'd been checking my HCG levels, and they had been rising just fine. I was feeling very good about things. But then I started having dark brown bleeding, and I was worried that this is what was happening or that something was wrong. So bleeding can happen with an ectopic because the pregnancy is implanted in the fallopian tube. That's what an ectopic pregnancy is. In this circumstance, they often do not stimulate the body to make enough progesterone. So the lining of the uterus becomes unstable and you can see some bleeding from it. Sometimes people could also have cramping or pain, especially on one side. That is another huge factor that would be very, very concerning. That's also kind of complicated because the placenta growing and invading into your uterus can just cause cramping normally. And sometimes that can be on one side, but pain, especially with bleeding, pain alone, bleeding alone, the recommendation for sharp pain on one side, or if you're having bleeding in the early pregnancy is to seek medical care. The things we are worried about the most in ectopic pregnancy is going to be high on the list. When a pregnancy implants in the fallopian tubes, it can be considered like a ticking time bomb, meaning it cannot grow a full-term baby. It is going to either stop growing and pass normally in that setting. You never knew it was an ectopic pregnancy. You probably thought it was a chemical pregnancy, so that would be the ideal scenario. But more commonly, you were going to find out that when you go in for an ultrasound, there is nothing in the uterus. Those are the words that your doctor may say. When nothing is inside the uterus, They're going to look at the fallopian tubes and see if they can identify a mass or an area of blood or a blood clot or a fetal sac or anything that could tell us the baby is in the fallopian tube for sure. When you have an ectopic pregnancy, the fear here is that the fallopian tubes are very thin, they don't have a very dense blood supply, and that they're going to rupture at some point. 
that can cause hemorrhage into your abdominal cavity and you could bleed to death. This is a huge medical emergency. Ectopic pregnancies can be treated by medical management with a chemotherapy injection called methotrexate. Methotrexate works as a folic acid antagonist, so it stops rapidly dividing cells because rapidly dividing cells need folic acid. Therefore, it terminates the pregnancy or the pregnancy can no longer grow and divide. That's a good thing because then your fallopian tube hopefully will not rupture. You can carry on and recover from this pregnancy. With methotrexate, you need very close monitoring. You have to make sure the pregnancy is responding. You have to follow HCG levels. There's very specific guidelines. It is less likely to work if the further along you are as far as baby size and HCG level. So it's not always appropriate for everybody. So you could tell a doctor, I really want methotrexate. And they may tell you, that's not a good option for you. And you need to listen to them if they say that. You've got to be able to get immediate medical access if you get methotrexate because we've all seen patients who've received methotrexate but then still had a pregnancy go and rupture later because the pregnancy is going to take time to fully resolve. When you get methotrexate, it's like getting hit by a truck. That's what I always tell people, like intense pain, fatigue, nausea. It's not a very fun scenario. It also lasts in your body for about three months. And so you can't get pregnant immediately afterward either. You've got to wait until it gets all the way out of your body since folic acid is really essential in cell growth and we don't want to have birth defects of that next baby. The other option is surgery. Surgery is an option to go in and remove a fallopian tube that is either ruptured or has the ectopic pregnancy in it. Sometimes you can try to make a cut on the tube and remove the ectopic pregnancy, and that can work occasionally, but you are at a higher risk to have that fallopian tube scar up or have another ectopic pregnancy in the future. So there are some circumstances where that work. I've also seen where doctors have tried that. Some of the placental or pregnancy cells are left behind in the tube, and then the patient still had to get methotrexate after surgery because it wasn't, their HCG levels weren't dropping like they should. And in that circumstance, it would have just been better probably to remove the whole fallopian tube because the tube is so likely to be damaged later. Sometimes this is a decision your surgeon has to make at the time of surgery. It just depends on the scenario. But I always recommend removing the entire tube, a damaged fallopian tube that gets dilated or causes a hydrosalpinx later does not do us any favors. You might need subsequent surgeries or medical interventions in the future. And then there's the pregnancy of unknown location or the PUL. These are probable ectopic pregnancies that are too early in development to see on ultrasound. So HCG levels that are rising, pregnancy not in uterus, not seen on ultrasound for fallopian tube because it's not big enough, but they are treated very much like ectopic pregnancies, except if you can't see a pregnancy in the tube, how are you going to know to take out a tube? So methotrexate is typically the first-line treatment for a pregnancy of unknown location. It is an unviable pregnancy that is not in the uterus, and so it is somewhere else, or it potentially could be in the uterus, but it's definitely not appropriate for its dating or its size, and so we know we need intervention. Sometimes in the early development of these, you might have HCG monitoring, which is the pregnancy hormone again made from the pregnancy to determine is it going up, is it going down, is it plateauing, and your doctor will use that information in conjunction with an ultrasound and your dates, when your period was, when you ovulated, if you had fertility treatment, 
to decide what is the best scenario for you. I do have an entire episode on ectopic pregnancy. It is older, but go and listen to that if you have more questions about this circumstance specifically. And then there's other reasons why we can have bleeding in early pregnancy. Things like your cervix gets really sensitive and have blood vessels coming to it. Sometimes we call it friable. Sometimes it's just sensitive. And after exams like pap smears, ultrasounds, or even intercourse, you can notice some bleeding from it. If you're using any vaginal medications like estrogen or progesterone, sometimes that can irritate the inside of the vagina and you may see some spotting from that circumstance. Occasionally, you can have polyps in your cervix that sometimes can bleed. Typically, those are not bleeding in pregnancy, but they absolutely can. So those are not common things, but something that could contribute. And so the take-home message is when it comes to bleeding, if you're having bleeding in early pregnancy, you need to contact your doctor. If you've not seen an appropriately developing baby on ultrasound, the workup is going to be different because your doctor is still going to be concerned about things like an ectopic pregnancy. If you've already seen a pregnancy growing and developing and you know it's at least inside the uterus, your doctor may be less concerned about things because they're going to know, okay, it's not one of these emergent scenarios. I can bring them in soon, but it might not be go to the emergency room immediately. This is another good reason why it's really important to try to establish care with an OBGYN or whoever's going to take care of you before you get pregnant. I personally love when my patients go to see their OB for a preconception visit. Did you know OBGYNs love these? They get to sit with you, talk you through tips and tricks to get pregnant, things you should know, lifestyle changes, and what to do when you get pregnant. I recommend this to everybody. You get to know your OB, like the practice, get some practical information, and then if you have an early pregnancy complication, scare, concern, bleed, you're already established to call in and say, hi, I'm having bleeding and I'm six weeks pregnant. They're going to be able to help you out versus if you're just picking up the phone and calling a clinic that you have never been to. So establishing early prenatal care is always going to be the most helpful thing. All right. And now it is time for FFS, for fertility's sake, where I am answering your top fertility questions. These are questions that you have asked on Instagram, and I am answering them every week on the podcast. So make sure you check out and follow along at Natalie Crawford MD, where you can be asking your questions and then stay tuned to see if we answer them. Question number one, two plus miscarriages now after natural pregnancies. When is the right time to start considering IVF? This is a really hard spot to be in. I've had those recurrent miscarriages myself. Number one, if you've had recurrent miscarriages, I recommend that you see a doctor to see if there's a reason why. Could it be autoimmune? Could it be a clotting disorder? Could it be an abnormality in the uterus? Could it be genetic? From there, the decision to do IVF or not is going to depend on your age, your family goals, and other factors. So not everybody who has miscarriages is going to need IVF. However, most of the people who have miscarriages we do that whole workup I just told you about, and it all comes back perfectly normal. And we're left just with random genetic abnormalities or some other implantation issue that may be best overcome with IVF because we can genetically test those embryos and we can synchronize the embryo and the uterine environment in a way that we can't in natural pregnancy. So if you've had two losses, please see a doctor to start the workup and start this discussion. You can see your regular OBGYN, or you can schedule an appointment directly with a fertility doctor like me to talk through what comes next. Question number two, 
what is a normal HCG level and what indicates a possible early miscarriage? This is a really good and timely question for this episode. So in general, the value of HCG is what you're checking if you check a home pregnancy test. So if you're checking a urinary test, you're checking that it's usually going to read positive at around 20 or 25 or higher. Now let's use IVF because we know exactly when implantation is happening. Typically, if you are checking a pregnancy test on around day 9 or 10 after the transfer, what you're anticipating is an HCG level to be around 100. If you are checking a little bit earlier, around 7 or 8, then around 50 may be fine. Whatever your starting value is, what we are actually looking for is the rate of the rise. And if you got pregnant naturally or with IUI or other treatment, you may not exactly know when you know fertilization implantation happened. But what we're looking for is from the start, you want to have about a doubling of your HCG in a 48-hour period. So you'll see us check patients on a Monday and then they come back on a Wednesday. And I want to see that it doubled in that time period. There's an actual specific number that it has to rise of a minimum about. But the easy way to think about it is that if it doubles, that's pretty accurate. If it's starting at a low value, I'll often check a third one to make sure it doubled again. Once you see a pregnancy on ultrasound, there's no point of checking future HCG levels. They do not mean anything. So HCG is only helpful for us in the very early course of a pregnancy. Now, an ectopic pregnancy or a non-viable pregnancy that's going to end in a miscarriage may result in a positive HCG that does not rise appropriately. So it's not doing its doubling. It might plateau. It might drop. It might be rising, but just not enough. And so these are clues to us earlier along in the course of the pregnancy that things are not right, hopefully so that we can intervene earlier and prevent any of those bad outcomes from happening. Question number three, what is a chemical pregnancy? A chemical pregnancy is essentially when you get a positive pregnancy test, regardless of if it's blood or urine, but then the test becomes negative or you start bleeding or miscarrying before you ever get to the stage where you see a pregnancy on ultrasound. Chemical pregnancies are a loss. I consider them a loss. Everybody does. You had hopes and dreams for that pregnancy, but it is an easier recovery period. You can try to get pregnant immediately. And we know from studies of the early pregnancy loss study where they checked urine samples of women who had no idea if they were pregnant or not. They just checked really highly sensitive HCG levels in the urine of people throughout the course of their cycle that these chemical pregnancies can be extremely common and often don't delay the menstrual cycle or only delay it by a few days. And so many people may not even know that they are having them. In this very famous study published in 1988, before many of you were born, 22% of people who were followed had a clinically unrecognized early loss of pregnancy. So they had no idea that they were even pregnant, but they had a chemical pregnancies. So chemical pregnancies I always view as the body's way to try to regulate and make sure that we're only letting the best potential embryos that have the capacity for cell development and organ formation and who are genetically normal and giving the right signals progress on to a pregnancy. All right, and question number four, what is an SIS and when do I need it? An SIS is a saline infused sonogram. This is a procedure we do in the office to look inside the uterus. An SIS is done by placing a speculum inside the vagina. You see the cervix and you'll clean it off. You'll then place a small catheter through the cervix into the entry point of the uterus. Water or saline will be injected into the uterine cavity 
while watching with ultrasound. The uterine cavity is actually a potential space. We think about this uterus and that inner cavity, but in day-to-day life, the uterus is decompressed. It's kind of the walls touch each other. What happens with the saline sonogram is when we put that saline inside, it separates those walls of the uterus. We're actually able to see the dark saline on ultrasound, and then we're able to look and see if there are subtle defects or abnormalities inside the uterus. So a saline can be used to look for fibroids, polyps, scar tissue, birth defects, or structural abnormalities of the uterus. A saline sonogram has to be done at a specific window of the cycle, usually between cycle days 6 to 10. When you're done bleeding, if cycle day 1 is when you start bleeding, and before you start to grow a thickened lining in preparation for ovulation. What we also do with a saline sonogram is it can be done when you're on birth control pills or some type of contraception. We always do a saline sonogram at 4-up before you get to an embryo transfer because we want to make absolute sure that uterus is the best environment before we put an embryo inside. Every doctor may be different, so if yours doesn't, you should ask about this. Other reasons to do a saline sonogram could be if you've had recurrent pregnancy losses and we want to look inside the uterus, if you have abnormal uterine bleeding and we're concerned about a fibroid or a polyp, or if something on regular ultrasound when that uterus is not distended potentially is looking abnormal and we want to get a closer look at that. A saline sonogram is a much better imaging inside the uterus than an HSG or a hysterosalpingogram, which is the x-ray dye test. An HSG is great because it can show you the outline of the fallopian tubes and an outline of the uterus, but it can't tell you what filling defects or potential abnormalities inside the uterus are 100% of the time. I always tell patients saline sonograms are either normal or abnormal. If they're abnormal, they're going to lead to surgery called hysteroscopy, where we put a camera inside the uterus and we can see for sure what is going on. That is the gold standard for uterine diagnosis and treatment. But if your SIS is normal, then we feel reassured that everything looks great inside the uterus and hopefully you're able to proceed with whatever your next step is. I hope you liked having some of your questions answered here on FFS. You can ask your questions each week on my Instagram account at NatalieCrawfordMD or the As A Woman podcast Instagram. So follow along, ask your questions, and stay tuned each week as we answer them here. Thank you all for listening to As A Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD and check out the YouTube channel, Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman.